Well, good morning. Uh, so just as the songs implied, we're going to be thinking more about um, prayer this morning, and specifically some parables Jesus taught on prayer. Uh, usually when you think about parables, um, at least what comes to my mind, are things maybe that we've already looked at, things like Matthew 13, the seed and the sower, or Jesus using some strange object lessons to communicate uh, points about the heart and our condition. Um, and it can be easy to forget that Jesus told parables on other subjects like prayer. And so we're going to look at three parables this morning uh, on prayer. Um, something that I think is helpful to note uh, before we look at these things is that our relationship with God, and I think just maybe generally all healthy relationships, are built on good communication reasonable expectations, and diligent trust. And in relationships with people, usually those things are not at all automatic. Um, Usually those are things you have to learn as you interact with a person, how to communicate with them properly, how to make things clear, um, how to have expectations that are reasonable for who they are and not having unreasonable or unfair expectations that either can't be met or that they just won't meet or uh, just not being trusting, right? And those are things that prayer really equips us to have with God. Prayer is our method of properly communicating with God, having expectations of who God is and what he's actually promised, and building a very invested and diligent trust in God. And so we know prayer is important, and I think we know these things, but um, if you're like me, and I have a feeling most are, um, I really struggle with prayer both with the time I devote to prayer, the concern that I give to prayer, and just when I am praying, really interacting with God with a proper understanding of who I'm talking to and valuing the avenue that I have with God in prayer, that I can just talk to God, the ruler of all creation and the possessor of all things, that I just have a straight line of communication with him. So you notice in our scripture reading that the Section starts with the disciples actually asking Jesus, hey, teach us to pray. We're going to see in these three parables that Jesus teaches about prayer that Jesus gives illustrations of three people who all have a specific need. And they're all very aware of their need and they're all interacting with someone on the basis of that need, right? And so what we're going to be focusing on with chapter 11 here is really verses 5 through 8, which I think is a parable in the midst of other things Jesus is teaching. So in verse 1, the disciples, they asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And it's interesting that in verses 2 through 4, Jesus gives a model prayer very similar to Matthew chapter 6. But it's interesting that in Luke, This obviously is not the same context as the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus maybe repeats to the disciples something they've heard before. Except this prayer is actually even shorter. So there's less in this prayer than in the Matthew chapter 6 model prayer. And Jesus actually spends more time in verses 5 through 13 really trying to teach them principles about prayer and principles about who God is more than just teaching them words to say in prayer. And so I think that really puts the priority on what prayer is. It's, it's not just important to know the words to say. 
What's more important, actually, is understanding who God is, what God is actually seeking with us, and how he's wanting to relate to us, and then basing our prayer and communication with God, basing that on who God is and what he's seeking. So you notice the first point. We need to learn to seek what God is seeking first, and that becomes a building block of good communication, reasonable expectation, and diligent trust. So let's read verses 5 through 8 again. So then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me, for the door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So we already talked about the why. Um, The disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, and this parable is directly related to that. So it's, it's connected to Jesus trying to help the disciples understand how to have a more effective prayer life, how to communicate with God in a more effective way. And so what happens in this parable? And it's really very simple, right? Just as parables very often are. You have a man whose friend comes at midnight, very inconvenient time. And if you notice in verse 6, this friend came from a journey. So they've come from maybe a distant place, and they're stopping at this person's house. And so this man's friend comes asking for bread uh, after this journey. But in verse uh, 6, he had nothing to set before him. And in verse 5, you notice at the end of the verse, this person asked for three loaves of bread specifically, so he didn't have any bread to give him. And in verse 7, because it's midnight, obviously, the door's already shut, the children are in bed, the family's asleep, and so his initial response is, no, I I can't give you anything, even though he does have the resources. Well, in verse 8, Jesus mentions that even though he wouldn't initially give anything, Because of this person's persistence, he'll get up and give him actually everything he needs. And so even though it was inconvenient and the timing was inconvenient, the situation was inconvenient with the person being asked, he still was given all that was needed. And obviously in verses 9 through 13, Jesus begins to make some points from this about God. And so I want to think think through some of that. So again, this is a very simple parable, but I think the lessons in it are extremely profound. I think here's the first thing that really is around the parable. So before Jesus actually gives the parable, in the prayer he talks about hallowing God's name, really revering who God is, seeing him as a father, but respecting him very ardently and diligently. Your kingdom come, being a request that God's authority, that his rule, his decree come more richly into your life and the lives of those around you. Uh, In verse 3, in terms of anything really physical in nature, really just asking for the most basic necessities and asking it in a way where God gets to choose whether or not he will fulfill that request and really respecting that we don't even deserve the minimum of daily necessity. That's completely up to God to choose if he'll give it. And then in verse 4, he returns right back to spiritually oriented requests Forgive us our sins as we forgive those indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. So 
God is seeking things. He's seeking to relate to us and seeking to give us things that ultimately I think what the parable is teaching us, things we don't have of ourselves. And so if you look at verse 9, he says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you, for everyone who asks receives. So God seeks what we do not have and what we cannot get of ourselves. And I think there's something very important about that um, and how that builds humility and faith. You think about things that God specifically instructs, things that Jesus instructed. Things as simple as hospitality or loving others, sacrificing ourselves for others. Things like in the Bible study this morning, understanding gifts that we individually have that God has given us and how to use those gifts. What we need to understand is that faith is built on understanding that those things aren't just automatic It's not just we acting on our own independent will, doing what God wants us to do, but that when God comes into our lives, what that exposes is he's looking for things that we need to find from him that he's fully willing to give. But we have to understand what is it that he is seeking. So notice back in verse 5, the person who came at midnight, he asked for three loaves. And I know it seems so simplistic, But what did the person then look for when that request was made? What did they try to get? Bread. You know, one of the problems with our communication with God or the expectations that we have or the trust that we have in God is we're not seeking the things that he's communicating that he's looking for from us. If you look back at verse 13, look at the last thing Jesus said. I think this is almost meant to be surprising and challenging. So after he says, well, you fathers, you know, you're not going to give your kid a scorpion or a rock. They ask for bread, right? So then in verse 13, if you're evil, well, how much more will your heavenly father give what to those who ask him? How much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Remember last week we talked about the instruction in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. Is the Spirit's work financial security? Is it health and prosperity? Is it job security? Is it comfortable leisure living? Is it being free from any health problems or insecurities about what life might bring or tragedies that life might bring? You know, oftentimes we have false expectations and then broken trust in God because what we're expecting from God are things that he's not even promised to give us in the first place. And we're looking for things that maybe from God's perspective aren't even the right things or even good things. And so just like a father from their perspective is able to filter through their children's requests and understand maybe what my child is asking for and bugging me about really is actually going to be harmful to them if they get the request. God, as a father, is able to filter through our petitions and understand what really is best. And that leads us to depend on him and to change our perspective of what is good, right? God always gives what is good. But what is it? And I think Jesus was helping the disciples fundamentally understand that what you think is good 
if you assert that onto God, what that's going to create are false expectations. It's not going to help you communicate with God. And what that's going to do is break your trust in God because, again, you're expecting things from the relationship that are completely inconsistent with who God is or what he's seeking to give and what he's seeking to do. Um, Something that I used to do a lot as a kid, and parents probably have experienced this a lot. Um, When I was a kid, there would be times where I would ask for food, and maybe it was something I haven't tried before, and then they would buy it for me and spend their money, and then I would try it, and then I would set it aside and say, no, I don't want it. And so I asked for it, but then when I got it, it wasn't actually something I even wanted in the first place, right? Um, Or when I tried it, I realized I didn't actually want it. And so we have to understand that we need to learn to value what God values as good. And we need to learn to understand that what God says is good might be radically different from what we see as good. And it hinders our relationship with God and his ability to give us what is good if by faith we aren't letting him change our perspective and what we think is good. So just to illustrate this as well, in Romans 8, verse 32, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So the problem is not that God isn't generous and that God isn't willing to overabundantly give us what is good. The problem is that we don't believe what God says about what is good. Um, One more thing on this before we move on. Um, I don't know if you've heard before the term, prayer isn't for for God, prayer is for you. Um, I've heard that a lot. Maybe some of you have said that before. Um, I really want to challenge that statement And I really want to challenge you to see that that is completely wrong. Um, Prayer is not just for us. Prayer is for us and for God. Imagine with your child, if you weren't able to interact with them in any meaningful way, and they wanted your resources, and they wanted the relationship only on their terms, and you were forced that if you were going to interact with them, it was only on their terms, you could only talk to them if you gave them exactly what they wanted, when they wanted it, How does that affect you as a parent to only have that kind of relationship with your child? You know, the difference in my relationship with my parents from when I was actively living in sin and throwing away everything my parents fundamentally wanted for me, I was able to have a relationship with my parents at that state of my life. The difference between my relationship then and now is radical. And the change in how we're able to interact with each other is not just for me. It's also for them. And so when we change our perspective and let ourselves humble ourselves, we humble ourselves to value things differently as God defines it. Yes, we receive ultimately the greatest benefit from his grace and his mercy, but ultimately it opens the door for God to be able to more meaningfully interact with us and give us what is truly good which otherwise we won't value enough to even seek or care even to receive or use when we receive it. So fundamentally with prayer, this parable teaches us that the issue is that we are not seeking the right things and that in prayer we have to learn to seek what God defines is good and seek God on his terms. And that fundamentally is the building block for a better and more effective prayer life. God is fully willing to give what is good 
and he gives it in abundance in verse, verse 9. And God is better in verses 11 through 13 than even an earthly father who pays attention to the needs of their child, right? It's just a matter, again, of setting our expectations in the right place. So let's look at chapter 18 on another parable with prayer. Um, Oh, really quickly, a little more with application on that. You can continue turning to Luke 18. Um, But with God's will being designed to build our faith and to humble us and to recognize that it's God providing through faith, not of ourselves, not by our own ability, but by request, by what he provides graciously, we can have assurance that if we're struggling with temptation and we don't feel like we have the resources to understand how to escape temptation or endure it, God is willing to give what we need to overcome and endure, right? When we feel like we don't have the understanding or the spiritual resources of heart or of mind or fortitude of patience to evangelize or to overcome things like anger in relationships or be more diligent to apply God's instructions for wives and husbands or do better to interact with people at work or accomplish our work in a God-glorifying way, we can have 100% assurance that God is willing to give us everything that's needed to accomplish his will. It's just a matter, again, of trusting that God is eager and he is willing. So Luke 18, 1 through 8. Luke chapter 18 verses 1 through 8. So with this, we're going to see somebody who has a need for justice. So the last parable, there was a need for bread, and he was able to get it from someone who uh, provided that. And we're going to see something similar here with justice, that this person is dependent on another to provide justice. Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, Will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So why does Jesus teach this parable? It's interesting that with each of these parables we're looking at, um, in the narrative, it's explained why. And that equips us, again, to get more out of the parable and approach it, knowing what we're supposed to be learning. So Jesus specifically is teaching that we ought to always pray and not lose heart. And I think the parable helps us understand the context of what that means. So what happens in this parable that gives us that context of meaning? In a city, there's a judge who did not fear God or respect man. So we have a selfish judge doesn't care about God, doesn't care about anyone else. And then you have this widow. And I think when you think about a widow, somebody who is completely helpless, they have nobody around them to protect them or plead for them. So she is entirely dependent on this judge to provide what she needs. Nobody else is going to. So the judge eventually is annoyed. And it's kind of interesting, the dialogue he has with himself. So look at verse four and five. So he said to himself, well, I don't fear God. I don't respect man. 
But because she's bothering him, he gives her legal protection so that she doesn't continue to wear him out by it. So the judge is unrighteous, he's selfish, and Jesus draws a double emphasize, he draws double emphasis on that. Um, if you look at verse 2, it's emphasized there, and then in verse 4, he repeats it to himself in his personal dialogue. So it's really important in the parable we realize that the judge gave this widow justice even though he was selfish. So think about this. Did the widow lose heart because the judge had an awful character? Did she stop pleading with him because of his character? You say, well, he's just a selfish jerk, and then just stop coming completely. Or because he didn't answer right away. Did she immediately think, well, he doesn't care about me. This isn't, nothing's going to happen, and then stop coming. Because she had no alternative, and because the need was not going away, she just diligently kept pressing the one person who could bring her relief. And I think that's very, very important when we draw lessons from this. So Jesus, obviously, in verse 7 and 8, we need to recognize, is God an unrighteous judge, right? Is God better than this jerk from the parable? Well, obviously. He even says that in verse 7. It's his elect people, and God will obviously bring justice for them quickly. So the point of the parable isn't that we've got to bother God or wake him up from sleep or God's attention is a different place and we have to keep yanking on his shirt tails until he finally looks down and pays attention to us. The idea is if even an unrighteous judge will eventually give, give heed to this widow, how much more will God who absolutely is invested completely in us, who loves us, who shares our concerns and shares our troubles, how much more confidence can we have then that God does care that God does hear us and he is working things out. I think the key is we need to revere God's way of responding to our burdens when things don't seem to go our way. Um, I'm going to use an UPS illustration, uh, but when I was working at UPS um, in, in a management position, oftentimes employees would ask me to do things for them to make things easier for them, and I would want to, but just the reality was, very often, there were factors way outside of their perspective that they had no idea were going on that would oftentimes either make it take longer than they wanted or it just couldn't happen at all. It just it literally could not happen. And so they would have to keep doing something maybe a hard in a harder way or things would just be hard on them. And just because of factors, again, outside of what they could see, and that they weren't even supposed to understand about the job and its mechanics. They just needed to keep doing their job, and they needed to trust that I did care about them, but there were limits on what I could do. So the point of that isn't that there's limits on what God can do, but we need to understand that we can say things very easily to God, or we don't give enough credit to all of the factors that are involved in his response. So in verse 8, it says he'll bring justice for them quickly. But then why does he then follow that, by, follow that by saying, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? You know, God is moving as fast as possible. God is actively working towards deliverance with whatever is bothering us, or whatever is burdening us. God cares about those things each individually. But how God responds to those things and tends to those things requires faith to appreciate 
Uh, Turn to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. This is an important psalm because David wrote this psalm. And he wrote it at a time that is very relevant to this point. David was running away from King Saul. And David was experiencing injustice for a very long time. And in verse 1, you notice right above that, your Bible will have a heading. And it'll tell you the situation David was in when he wrote this psalm. It's when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who is a king in the Philistine nation, who drove him away and he departed. David was not doing well spiritually in that situation. Saul was pursuing David. David wasn't having prophets come and clarify things to him. God anointed him king while Saul was still in power, but Saul was becoming more and more and more aggressive. Things were getting worse and worse and worse for David. And yet in this moment, he by faith reflects on the fact that God has been and will continue to deliver him from all of his troubles, no matter how things may look by its appearance. Because long after this psalm, David still would not sit as king on the throne. And he would continue to suffer at the hands of Saul, even after writing the psalm. Yet listen to verse 17 through 22. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. You know, recently something that really impacted me was about two weeks ago, Um, Eva and Marie have been reading the Psalms together and just texting things back and forth that they've been learning. One day when Eva read Psalm 34, she called me over after reading it and she read me this section. And she said, I see myself in these words. And so I think when we think about Luke 18, you know, oftentimes when we think about God's justice and his deliverance, we're not thinking about things intimately enough. We're not thinking about how quick God is to respond outside of what we may initially think God should do for us. Again, David had to learn and we need to learn the difficulty of seeing who God is as he is and as he defines himself. And I think just realistically, it's just important to acknowledge that understanding God's work and understanding how to see his work and and how to trust him in the right way and communicate Just like any relationship, there's a process of learning. And these parables are meant to equip us with the more difficult aspects of that process of learning and trusting God. So God is not an unrighteous judge, right? God doesn't hear us and forget. God isn't selfishly just trying to get away from our problems. We can trust that God is invested and that he does hear the things that burden us and he will always work towards deliverance. And that is something that can give us a sense of calm in our faith and peace, even when things don't seem to end um, in their burden immediately. So let's look at chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. This is a parable that may not seem immediately to be about prayer, but I think as we read it, um, you'll be able to see uh, fairly easily how how it relates. So 
This is someone who sees their need for mercy in this parable. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice, twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So why does Jesus teach us this parable? It's to equip us to change our attitude in two ways. One is changing our attitude about ourselves, and for two, to change our attitude about others. And so we see this illustrated in the parable in these two people. The first is the Pharisee. Um, I think it can be easy to overlook how absolutely solid this person was. The Pharisee here is extremely moral. So, I mean, you look at verse 11. He's praying to God for one, and he's not a swindler. He's not unjust. So he is honest in the way he deals with people. He's not unfair with people. He said he's not an adulterer, so he's sexually pure. He's not like the tax collector, so he's not an extortioner. He fasts twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. So he seems fairly sacrificial in the way that he's living. I mean, fasting twice a week, that's more than I think anyone I've ever known does habitually. And he's paying tithes of everything he gets. I mean, so that's, that's a lot of giving that this person is involved in. So this, this person is solid all around. But obviously we read about this guy and we sneer at the reading because he is obviously deeply, deeply arrogant, right? Especially in the way that he talks about himself as he's reciting these things, as he looks down on a tax collector who we also saw is actually the person who is justified in the parable. So although this person on the outside is extremely moral, they're, they're just beyond uh, dispute, upright in their character, their heart deep inside is completely arrogant. The tax collector, standing some distance away, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The irony is, us looking from the outside of the parable, we can actually see that the Pharisee needed to become more like the tax collector, ironically, even though he was looking down on him. But that's, that's it, is he just desperately saw that he needed mercy and that that wasn't something he could obtain from the law of Moses alone. It wasn't something he just needed other people to provide for him. He desperately and urgently needed this from God. And you look at verse, the end of verse 13. I like the way the New American Standard translates this. Be merciful to me, the sinner. And so he more than anything saw that if anyone's a problem, it's me. And it's so overwhelmingly me. I need urgent help for God to give me mercy. And so what are some lessons that we can learn? I think one really important thing is how Jesus equips us just to even read the Bible more effectively. God uses caricatures, so not characters, caricatures that are easy to condemn to equip us to be better students of our own hearts. 
So you remember, it was either last week or the week before that, uh, we talked about how God, through parables, equips us to be students of our own hearts. And the caricatures that we see in the Bible are one of the ways that he equips us to do that. So if you don't know what a caricature is, it's kind of like a cartoony, you know, exaggeration of what a person or figure may look like. Um, people at like malls and fairs and whatever, they draw caricatures for people for like $20. Um, I remember when I was 11 years old, uh, we went to Mall of America in Minnesota and there was a caricature artist there and uh, I had a drawing of me. So can you imagine what features he exaggerated as he drew me? <laughs> so I was really insecure about my ears, right? So I really did not like the drawing <laughs> that he made for me. I hated it because I, I was really embarrassed. My head was smaller and my ears looked bigger. Um, but yeah, they were, they were absolutely huge. Um, but the thing is, when those, when those features are exaggerated, you can't ignore it, right? So the Pharisee here isn't just meant to be someone we point at passively and like, wow, yeah, what a, what a lousy person. These caricatures are meant to equip us to see more subtle things that are issues that exist in my heart. And it's the same all around. The Pharisees in general, when you look at them not believing Jesus or condemning him after everything, the point of that isn't, what is wrong with them? No, it's, where is that in me? Because it is there. Or, you think about Israel in the Old Testament and their struggles with idolatry and all of the things that happened at, at the ignorance of God's work and the history of God's work. That's not just meant to point the finger at Israel. Remember James chapter 1, when he says you look into the law of liberty, what is it like? Is it like you're looking through a window at other people's problems? Or looking through a window at Israel and all their sin? Or looking through a window at the Pharisees to mock at their issues of faith and their unbelief? He says it's like a mirror. And if you go away without applying it, it's like you have forgotten your own self in the process. God's word is meant to be a mirror. And reading parables isn't meant to be like watching something that's just entertaining or you read it and you just, well, either I agree or disagree. I mean, I guess it's good. It's meant to be something, again, that equips us to look more diligently at ourselves. And one of the lessons I think we learn is we need to be deliberately and aggressively at war with pride through prayer. That one of the blessings of pride is, again, with interacting with God in a meaningful way and allowing God to define expectations and putting more trust in God. Pride is the enemy of a meaningful and true relationship with God. In verse 13, or I'm sorry, verse, verse 11, the issue with the Pharisee was not his external morality, it was his pride. And it was that he was giving full liberty to his pride to control his perspective of himself, of others, and of God. And so when we pray, we need to be praying in a way where we are striving to uproot pride out of our hearts, where we're trying to surgically let God and let his word help us to find it and put it to death. And then with that, it's, it's vital that we also learn to develop a better understanding of how much we need mercy through prayer. Again, the irony of the parable is that we see that the Pharisee needed to be more like the tax collector. And although he was so upright on the outside, paid tithes, was not dishonest, wasn't a swindler, wasn't sexually immoral, 
even though he was so solid in his moral standards, he still needed to see his need for mercy just like the tax collector. And at the end of the parable in verse 14, he says, the tax collector went away justified rather than the other. And you know what that implies? That Pharisee, thinking he was interacting with God, there was no interaction whatsoever. Nothing happened. But with the tax collector, there was an interaction, a meaningful and cornerstone, fundamental foundation was set in the way that he interacted with God because it was based in the truth of who God is. And so when we pray, we need to be striving to understand better our need for mercy. It's not that we, we, we repent and begin to serve God and our dependence on mercy becomes less and less and less as we establish better habits more and more and more. It's that as we grow in being able to see the vast righteousness of God, the more we stand in awe of Jesus and his heart and his character, and we see the extent of how far God takes everything he instructs for us, we are more and more humbled as we see more and more the depths and the riches of how he provides more and more mercy to fill our deep need. So that's where we'll end the lesson for, for this morning. hope these parables have helped just give you things to equip you to have a more meaningful prayer life and better understanding of who God is and how much he loves us and how quick he is to respond to our needs. It's just a matter, again, of just understanding the truth of who God is and humbling ourselves to repent and put our hands out to receive what he gives as he says he'll give it. Um, If you're here and you see your need for mercy, God is so clear in his word about the way we receive his forgiveness through repentance in hearing the gospel message of Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead, and then through believing and repenting, seeking what God says we need to do to be saved. And God is very clear that we need to repent and be baptized for the remission of our sins to receive forgiveness in the name of Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so if you're here this morning and that's something that you uh, understand your need for, if there's anything else that can be brought forward at this time related to relationship with God, we would be eager to receive it as we stand singing invitation song.